Wonderful. Good morning. Good morning to you. If you've got your Bibles, do turn to the book of Acts. We are starting a new series, or I should say part two of an old series. Uh, if you can remember, all the way back to last year, we were looking at the first eight chapters of Acts, and uh, really before diving then into our Transformed Life series that we started this year. We called part one of Acts simply Dynamic, Dynamic, because really that first part of Acts was all about the transforming work of God, changing the early church from a bunch of disillusioned, fearful people into dynamic, Holy Spirit-empowered city changers. It was a complete transformation. So we call it dynamic, because that is what God has called us to be as well, dynamic in His power. This second section, part two, we're simply calling missional, missional, because really it's about this dynamic, empowered church being propelled on mission to take this gospel beyond Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This amazing news that we've been singing about and talking about, that Jesus has given us life. He himself is alive, that death could not hold him, that through his death, every sin, past, present, and future has been paid for, that all who call upon his name will be saved. The truth that it's only in Jesus that we find healing and wholeness and truth and hope. And so really this is the story of the continuing mission of Jesus to take this message, this gospel, to the ends of the earth. A mission that we ourselves are continuing. So part two is called missional. Uh, to get us back up to speed, last year we kind of left the church uh, facing intense persecution. They were being scattered beyond Jerusalem. We, we looked at Philip and then he was joined by Peter and John in Samaria. We, we saw how Stephen had been murdered, martyred. He was the first Christian martyr and very key to that was a young man called Saul of Tarsus. Thank you very much. And last we heard of Saul, he was going door to door, dragging out suspected followers of the way, as Christians were called then, dragging them out, beating them, shaming them, throwing them in prison. He was not a nice man at all. We have this little verse in chapter 8 that simply says, Saul began to destroy the church. But God had other ideas. Praise God. Let's just pray as we get into this. Father, I just want to thank you for, yeah, just again, your presence with us. I pray that we will have ears that hear and hearts that respond to what you're wanting to say to us through the passage this morning. Pray you'll equip me in the time that we've got to be clear and just to get what you want to get across. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, really this morning, it kind of is, is going to act as a link between our Transformed Life series and getting back into the book of Acts. Because if anyone knew the transforming power of God, 
it was this guy, Saul, soon to be more commonly known as the mighty apostle Paul. He was both a Jew and a Roman citizen, hence his two names. Saul was his Hebrew name, and Paul was his Roman name, which is why, as he was called to reach deeper and deeper into the Roman Empire, he went more commonly by his Roman name, Paul, which is how we tend to know him. But it's amazing, isn't it? We spent the last eight weeks of this Transformed Life series looking at this inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired teaching by this guy on identity and purpose and belonging, who we are in Christ, powerful stuff. What a difference. What a transformation to the guy that we now see in Acts chapter 9. Let's pick up the story. Acts chapter 9, we're going to read from verse 1. So meanwhile, while all this scattering was happening, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus... On his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do, which he did. I mean, this guy was obsessed, wasn't he? I mean, not content with simply rounding up and imprisoning the the Christians in Jerusalem. He then wanted to go out and pursue the ones that had slipped through the net, the ones who had been scattered into the neighboring areas. He was completely fanatical about crushing what was in his eyes this, this religious sect. And yet in his eyes... He was, he was simply a devout Pharisee doing what he felt was right. He thought he was doing God a favor, a service, by stamping out these heretical followers of Jesus. And so off he went to Damascus with the whole of the, the Jewish council behind him. He would have been unstoppable. And yet God in his mercy and grace, broke in. And we have one of the best-known conversion stories in history. You know, we have this phrase, don't we? Oh, they had a Damascus Road experience, basically meaning anything that stopped someone in their tracks and turned their life around. And and so there was Saul, full of self-righteous pride, thinking he was doing the right thing, acting in his eyes, in the service of God, but his self-righteousness had blinded him to the truth. And it was only until God broke in, physically blinded him, brought him to his knees as he encountered the risen Jesus Christ. That was the only time suddenly it became a little bit clearer. In that moment, I mean, talk about a revelation. In that moment, he realized Jesus was 
alive. And notice how Jesus completely identified himself with his church. He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? Totally identified himself with his church. You know, if you're ever tempted to say, uh, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I'm really not that into the church. You haven't understood the heart of Jesus here. He totally identified himself with his church. It's his body, his bride who he's passionate about, his joy, who he laid his life down for. You know, let's not, let's not confuse or try and separate our love for Jesus from our love for his church. He totally identifies himself with his church. That's why Jesus broke into Saul's life. It was for his church. That's why we go to great lengths to keep the unity, this bond of peace. That's why we encourage one another, build one another up. That's why we serve one another and give. It's because it's Jesus' church. And so we've got this Damascus Road experience, which... I think I, I've, I've had the habit of putting on a pedestal. You think that is the ideal, this, this, this way of breaking into someone's life in an instant, transforming Saul in an instant. But I just want to say, I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for Damascus Road experiences in other people's lives. But I just think we need to realize that just because nothing dramatic seems to be happening in people's lives that we're praying for doesn't mean nothing is happening. I think we can start to see these Damascus Road experiences and think, that's, you know, well, that's, that's God's ideal. Why aren't I seeing that? Actually, God is often at work in the unseen realm in people's hearts. And actually, as we look into this, this story this testimony of Saul's conversion, we actually see it wasn't a quick fix. There was a journey involved, as we'll see. So let's not put it on a pedestal. Wouldn't it be nice for every you know, salvation to happen this way? Actually, there are many different ways. It's a journey, but ultimately, it is all about God's work in us. Whatever the external circumstances surrounding someone's decision to follow Jesus, every salvation is an incredible miracle of God. So let's not put it on a pedestal, but what I want to do using this is actually draw things out that will hopefully give us real encouragement and hope as we pray and witness to others. Because there's many, many things that we can draw out of this that we can apply to our situations when we pray for our colleagues and family and friends and just to see God break him, to see their lives transform. So very quickly, I'm having to paraphrase this because I'm aware of time. Point number one, a transformed life is an act of God's grace. It is totally his Work. In other words, while Saul was pursuing Christians, God was pursuing him. I love that fact. I love the fact that God is on our case. God is on the case of that person you are praying for. You know, in fact, in verse 15, Paul is described as God's chosen instrument. 
He was chosen. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you are his chosen instrument. You're not here by accident. Do you believe that? Do you believe you are his chosen instrument, chosen to do good works? He's prepared in advance for us to do. This is all of God's doing. It is his choice. It is his power alone that brings us to that point of surrender. You know, it's his revelation of his love and his forgiveness that melts the hardest of hearts. And Saul's heart was very hard. You know, that, I love that fact because it gives me hope. It gives me hope as I pray for my friend or my neighbor or my loved one. As I, as I say, God, it doesn't seem to be anything happening here. Actually, it's not down to us ultimately. It's down to, to God. And he is at work. And while we have our part to play, as we'll see in a little while, we can leave it in his hands. He alone can change a heart. He is the instigator. You know, every conversion starts with an encounter, with a revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, it might not be in bright lights, blinding lights, as in Saul's case, but it is always a case that the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us, what he has done, who he is. And as a result, we're compelled to make a response. He instigates, we respond. That's what we see here with, with Saul. Um, I've been reading a book by Pete Gregg called Dirty Glory. It's basically a continuation of his story, um, starting the 24-7 prayer movement. It's just God's been doing some incredible things. But I loved it when he, he described a time when, as a youth group, they would meet in his mum's garden shed at the bottom, down the bottom of their garden. You know, as a youth group, they, they just said, look, we're fed up of going through the motions. If God is real, we want to encounter him. And they didn't really know what to do, so they just started praying as a youth group in his garden shed. Just sang very out of tune and prayed very bad prayers. But one evening, God showed up in an incredibly powerful way. And they were just dumbstruck. And word got out. Suddenly, their school friends, their unsafe school friends, wanted to check it out. And there was one evening where this one guy came along, mainly because he fancied one of the girls who was meeting there. And that evening there was an intense sense of God's presence in that little shed. And he bolted for the door. He ran out of the shed, down the garden path. And, and Pete eventually caught up with him, said, are you all right? And he turned to him, white as a sheet, and said, God is in there. And Pete just said, it's kind of the point, yes, yeah, well, this is, yes, that's, that's right, God is in there, and that's why we're praying. And, and he said, no, no, you don't understand. He said, the thing is, if I go back in there, I'm going to have to sort out some stuff which I really don't want to talk about. I really don't want to face. See, the thing is, he had encountered the holiness of the presence of God, and that demanded a response a response that he was obviously massively struggling with. And Saul was too. You know, Saul found out an encounter with Jesus, whether in bright lights or, or in a garden shed or just an inner revelation, it challenges us to respond. It challenges us to change. It's an act of God's 
grace. And as I said, Saul wrestled with this. It wasn't an instant, oh my goodness, there's Jesus. What must I do to be saved? No, he wrestled with this for three days. You know, sometimes we can read the, the Saul's conversion account and just think that it was instantaneous. You know, one moment he was there persecuting churches, the next moment, bang, I'm planting churches. That's not how it happens. It was certainly dramatic, but there was still a journey involved to get him to the point of surrender. Again, I find that quite encouraging. Point two, a transformed life can take time. There is a process involved. There is a journey. As I said, often, you know, unseen. We don't know what's going on. As I said, despite Saul's powerful encounter on this road, he still wrestled with it. Three days before finally surrendering to Jesus. You know, and as far as becoming suddenly overnight this super apostle, it was actually 10 years or more, over 10 years, before he launched his first missionary journey. He spent three years, we know, in the Arabian desert. What was he doing there? Well, we don't know for detail, but we do know that he was having a powerful encounter with God. You know, the Holy Spirit was, was equipping him was teaching him. He was probably reading through the scriptures that he knew so well, but this time in the light of the resurrection, in the light of the truth of who Jesus was, that Jesus was the Messiah, as the Holy Spirit brought revelation through scripture. Amazing time. I mean, maybe it was a time of restoration and healing. I mean, crumbs, he would have had some baggage, wouldn't he? He would have had some shame and some guilt to deal with. I was persecuting your church, Lord. How can you use someone like me? And yet God dealt with him. What a marvelous revelation. They must have discovered that in Christ we are new creations. That our past doesn't have to determine our destiny. He then spent, we know, another six years in Tarsus, just getting plugged back into the church. Just getting on with his faith. Before finally Barnabas calling him to Antioch and off they went on his first missionary journey. Even before his Damascus Road experience, there was still a process going on. You know, in Paul's own description of his conversion, when he's on trial in Acts 23, chapter, sorry, 26, he mentions that Jesus also said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The, the goad, if you don't know your agricultural terminology, I didn't. A goad is a, is a sharp spike that's used to steer cattle and oxen. The point being, you know, the more you kick against this goad, the more you suffer, the more it hurts. And that, that's what Saul was doing. Jesus was using different events and different circumstances to, to steer, to prod Saul to the truth. And Saul was kicking against it and he was suffering as a result. All this was going on before his Damascus Road experience. What were these experiences? What were these prods? Well, we know from Paul's own hand in chapter 22 that one of them was the way Stephen died. That nagged at him. Just seeing the, the, the glory and the grace of God on this guy as he was being stoned, his face shining like an angel, the testimony of his mouth, just the way he forgave those who were actually murdering him. Incredible power 
incredible grace on display. It must, and it did, nag at him. I haven't seen anything like that. Maybe as well it was just the, you know, as he was going around persecuting the church, just seeing the way the believers loved one another, how they modeled this authentic community, this unity. As he started hearing more and more reports of miracles and and healings, it, it must have started these questions in his mind and in his heart. Maybe there's some truth to this gospel that they're proclaiming. Carl Jung once said, fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating for secret doubts. It's interesting, isn't it? Fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating for secret doubts. And I I think that's so true. I've experienced that in people. You know, that they get more aggressive and more vehemently opposed to the gospel just before they give their lives to God, before they go on an alpha. So I said, I've witnessed that firsthand. Perhaps another prod, another goad in Saul's side was the simple question Ananias, who we'll get onto in a minute, asked him. He simply said, what are you waiting for? Saul, what are you waiting for? You know, and sometimes people just need that helping hand, that little nudge to actually respond, to cross that line and say, okay, Jesus, I'm yours. You know, so don't think for a moment that this conversion that we read about was an instant fix. There was a load of stuff that God was doing behind the scenes to bring him to that place of surrender and to equip him for for future ministry. And and that can give, give us great hope because point three, God can transform the most unlikely, the most unexpected person. I think of all the things, Saul's conversion tells me that. It gives me hope. God can save anyone. No one is beyond his love. No one is beyond his reach. You know, Paul himself described, Paul described himself to Timothy as the worst of sinners. It's like, I I am the worst of sinners. And he ends up writing nearly half the New Testament. It's amazing, isn't it? That gives me hope as I pray for my unsaved friends and family. That gives me hope as I, as I see horrendous atrocities, you know, on TV, on the news, even ones committed in the name of God, because I know God can turn situations around. Saul's conversion tells me God can redeem any situation. That's what he does. That is what he does. That is the message of the cross. It's a message of redemption. We started singing that thousand second chances. He is the God who is able to redeem all circumstances. He is a God who can bring good out of the greatest evil. It's the message of the cross. He's the God who can make all things, all things work together for good, Romans 8.28. And the Bible is full of hopeless cases being transformed by God and being used to accomplish great things. 
incredible things in his name. You know, I'm, I'm sure the early church would have been praying to God to smite Saul of Tarsus down. God, will you just rise up in power and get rid of this man? Smite him, destroy him, get rid of him. And yet God had an even greater plan. A plan to use the zeal and the passion and the devotion that was already in him. But redirect it, redeem it to the truth. To use him to build up churches and not tear down. I mean, isn't God amazing that he can do that? He can do that in your situation. He can do that in your family. He is a God who is able to make all things work together for good. So can I just encourage you? Keep praying for those impossible situations. Keep praying for those loved ones who you see absolutely no change. Year in, year out, no change. Keep praying We don't know what God is doing in their hearts. Keep praying for the impossibly lost. Keep praying for our towns and our nation that just seems increasingly hostile to the gospel. He is a God who is able to turn situations around. And he wants to use you in the process. Point four, God uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. And very much part and parcel of Saul's conversion was this guy, Ananias. God asks this very regular guy to go and lay hands on this persecutor of Christians. (laughs) Seems crazy, doesn't it? Let's read um, Ananias' response. Verse 13 of chapter 9. Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, hello, this is a suicide mission. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I mean, Jesus is pretty much up front there to what he's calling Saul to. Then Ananias, I love that, just without another question. Then Ananias went to the house, entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. I mean, what set Ananias apart? Actually, not a lot, really. Not a lot. We know he was a kind of a regular believer that prayed, obviously, and studied the word. We know he was full of the Holy Spirit because God asked him to lay hands on Saul to receive his sight. We also know that he was a man of compassion. I mean, just look at the way he approaches this, this known murderer, possibly someone who imprisoned and beat people he knew. His first words out of his mouth was, Brother Saul. 
brother Saul. That must have had a huge impact on Saul. Not only did he know the forgiveness of God, but here he was experiencing the forgiveness of those he was actually persecuting. That must have undone him. Brother Saul. But you know what the thing that really stands out to me about Ananias was his simple, faithful obedience to God. You know, he may not have been famous, but he was certainly faithful. He was totally upfront about his concerns. You know, God, you do know who this guy is. And yet he trusted God. He trusted God. And you know, the thing is, when we are asked to step out in faith, when we are asked to go, okay, God, I'm now feeling a little bit uncomfortable here, we've got to trust that God is at work at both ends of the situation. Okay, so in this case, that God was at work in Ananias' heart, giving him the courage and the faith and the boldness to approach Saul, but also that he was trusting God that he was also at work in Saul's heart, softening it so that he wouldn't end up being hauled up and persecuted himself. He had to trust that God was at work in both ends of the situation. And you know what? The part he played was absolutely crucial, wasn't it? Under God's guidance, he led Saul right the way through. He, he restored his sight. He got filled with the Holy Spirit. He got baptized in water. He led him right the way through. This is a normal Christian birth. Can I just say, if you're not baptized in water, if you're not filled with the Spirit, please do. Don't hesitate. We're going to have some baptisms here in the near future as well. Please do contact the church office. I'd love to get baptized. You know, it's a wonderful statement of, of obedience to Jesus. It's also a wonderful witness to those around of what God has done in your heart. So here Saul was. He was obedient. He got filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in water because of Ananias' faithfulness. You know, God probably won't ask us to well, maybe he will sometime, but I don't know. But to go up and pray for a known murdering persecutor of Christians, that, that might not happen. But he does ask us to approach our work colleagues or parents at the school gate or to cross the road and pray for a complete stranger. That's scary enough in itself, isn't it, at times? How will we respond? Will we follow Ananias' example of simple faithful obedience. You know, there, there is, there's a lot of work still to be done in our borough. You know, there's probably many other souls, you know, yet to encounter the risen Jesus Christ, even in this borough. We need to pray, and we simply need to be available when God asks. I'm aware of time. I just want to share very briefly, just... I've been reading again about the Hebridean revival. 1949, a massive outbreak of God happened in the Outer Hebrides. And it had its roots in the prayers of two faithful elderly sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith. One of them was blind. The other one was crippled with arthritis. They couldn't get out to church, but they could pray. 
and pray they did. And God had put a burden on their heart to pray for revival, to pray for the church because there was, they noticed that the youth, the young people weren't coming to faith. And this grieved them. And so they prayed and they prayed until God said, revival is coming. And on the back of that word, they stirred up the leaders of the church. They said, you need to pray. You need to pray. And and on the back of that, a young evangelist by the name of Duncan Campbell came over to preach for two weeks. He stayed for two years because there was such a powerful outbreak of God on those islands that it transformed the lives of thousands and thousands of people. There were reports of the the building, the barn where they met was shaking like in Acts 4. There were reports of in the middle of a dance full of young people. Everyone just left and fled to the church because the Holy Spirit fell and they just knew they had to get right with God. There were reports of the police station, hundreds turning up at the police station because they knew one of the sergeants was a God-fearing man and they just needed to get right with God. Hundreds and hundreds of people responding to God as the Holy Spirit fell. God, do it again. Do it again in our lifetimes. You know, and that's not to say Peggy and Christine were the only ones praying. It was said that prayer was woven into the very fabric of the church and that at their church prayer meetings, the whole church membership would attend. I'll just say that again. At church prayer meetings, the whole of the church membership, I'm just saying, attended. But you know what? The fact is, God continues to use ordinary people like Peggy and Christine, through which he can accomplish extraordinary things. Extraordinary things. And God is calling the Peggies and the Christines. God is calling the Ananiases. God is calling you and me. To do extraordinary things through simple acts of faithfulness and obedience. I'm sure Ananias didn't have a clue to the impact of his, his, his obedience. You know, I'm sure Peggy and, and Christine didn't have a clue as to the impact that they would have as they gave themselves to prayer. And you know what? Neither do we as we give ourselves to God in faithful, humble obedience. I think there needs to be a real step up just nationally as we pray for salvation. I think this just one event is really exciting. You know, we need to call on God to break in time and time again, to break into the hearts of the souls, to break into our own hearts, to move us like Peggy and Christine, to to pray and pray If the band could come back up, I just want to finish by just saying, source conversion teaches us that we should never underestimate what God can accomplish through even one conversion. And it also teaches us that we should never underestimate what God can accomplish through very ordinary people like you and me. Let's stand, let's worship God, and then I just want to pray for us as well. You know, if you've been praying for, for someone, maybe it's a family member, a friend, colleague, for years and years, and you haven't really seen any glimmer of breakthrough, I'd love to pray with you at the end of the service, really just to stand with you, but just to keep, keep trusting, keep being faithful to what God has called us to, to do. 
And let's see God break in an increasing power in our lifetime. Amen? Let's stand to our feet. Let's worship God.